believe there are two reasons to build, to, to do a startup. One is you're passionate about something, you want to do a company, and you're willing to ram your idea down the throats of potential clients. That was UTD. The second reason is you see a niche and you fill it. And that's Coach Me Strong. So I've had the opportunity to do both of these, right? Be passionate about something, create a new product, try to market it. Be open to a niche, create it, fill it, and then try to market it. The commonality between those two things, it doesn't matter which one you do if you're, if you're willing to go the long road for either one. The commonality is business startups are marketing projects. Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, serial entrepreneur who's grown several startups into seven and eight figure businesses, as well as a founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where he helps startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com and we're always here to help. Now, today we've got another great guest on the podcast, Jeff Seckendorf. And as a quick introduction to Jeff, so Jeff was a, what he would say is a child photographer, so he uh, all throughout his younger years, loved photography and worked for a local newspaper starting at 17 and then moved around with a couple additional papers, uh, moved over to television news and did uh, also learn how to do, uh, move from photography to cinematography, uh, moved into commercials on or commercials on film. And I think did over a thousand TV commercials, had an opportunity to come along um, or, or had an opportunity to come along to do or get into scuba. Thought that sounded fun and interesting. Built a business with a friend for a while. They ended up splitting up for a bit and then also learned a lot on the IT and technology along the way. Um, and then uh, had a friend that got into Parkinson's and also had uh, with COVID shut down. So I moved over to scuba. I moved from scuba training into Parkinson's exercise regimens. And then now is running, I think, both a scuba business as well as a exercise regimen in parallel. So with that much as an introduction, welcome on the podcast, Jeff. Great. Thanks, Devin. Great to be here. So I gave kind of the quick th or 30 second run through <laughs> of a much longer journey. So why don't you take us uh, a bit back in time to starting out as uh, with your love as a uh, photography as a child and how your journey got started there? Yeah, I was a, a kid photographer, right? So my uncle gave me, a, I think it was a Hawkeye brownie camera when I was a kid. And, you know, I played with that. We built a darkroom in my house. So, so all through my childhood, I was doing photography. And, uh, and like you mentioned earlier, ended up on a local newspaper, moved on to wire services, UPI, worked for the New York Times, Newsday, all that kind of stuff. And then at some point shifted it over to moving pictures through TV news and then went on to do commercials. Um, from commercials, I went on to do movies. Now, slowing down just a bit because yeah. that jumps into quite a bit of your journey. So, you, you know, you started out just kind of as the fun as a kid as a photographer, you know, doing photography. And then at 17, worked with a, you know, started, I think you said, as a, as a newspaper, as a photographer. Yeah. So I assume, but you can fill me in, that you went straight from graduating high school right into the news industry. Is that right? Yeah, I wasn't even graduated. Well, all right. Um, now, did you graduate high school? Just out of I did yeah. graduate high school. Yeah, I did right. finish it. Um, you know, I, I massaged that to my own needs a little bit, but I did get a high school diploma out of it. And then, um, but I was basically going to like, high school in the morning and then driving to my job as a newspaper photographer for the rest of the day. And I did that for a couple of years. Well, not a couple of years until the high school thing was over. So now um, high school, now high school finishes and you said, okay, 
already know what I want to do. I already kind of know my passion. Why, you know, college isn't going to working in the work world, getting the experience and going down that path is probably the, the, you know, the better suited path for you. So you get into newspapers and how long did you work for newspapers? Um, I had a still photography career for about 10 years. It was a little more interesting than that too, because I was accepted at Syracuse university in the photojournalism school. Hmm. And so I got on my little motorcycle and I went to Syracuse, which is, I don't know, three, four, five hour drive, stayed with some friends who were there, toured the, uh, the journalism school. And um, they told me that your first photography course will be in two years. And I'm like, at that point, I didn't understand that photography courses was the least important part of it. So I turned around, I went home, I went back to work and I kept my career moving that way. If I skip ahead a couple of decades, when I was teaching filmmakers um, at the Rockport College and the, the main um, photographic workshops, they would always ask me, where should I go to film school? And my initial, or my, my always answer was, all they're going to teach you in film school is how to make movies in film school. So if you want to go to college and make movies, do something that's productive to become a visual storyteller at that point. So that would be, you know, go get an art history degree, go get a, you know, bizarre European philosophy degree, learn to think, learn to see how the world thought throughout history and then apply that thinking, that process of thinking to your own storytelling. And that's, I think that's the road to filmmaker better than, you know, learning how to put film in a camera and learning, you know, that kind of stuff. Hmm. No, that makes sense. So, so you now, so you, you make, have that realization, you start get into Syracuse, you're going to go down that path and said, well, I don't know if I want to wait two years to actually get any experience Does this makes sense. So you got into, you did uh, newspapers for quite a while. Now, what made you switch kind of from doing newspapers over to television news and then to doing commercials? So that was, that followed a lot of what happens in my career, which um, is basically serendipitous. So I was um, kind of looking for a job. You know, I'd been freelancing for a long time. I was kind of looking for a job, something to do. Some tea, you know, I had a journalism background, you know, I worked for UPI and all these other papers. Um, and so I just stumbled into my local TV station in Albany, New York. And they hired me. I was kind of the last photojournalist to get hired to become a news cameraman at that point. And then from there, they were taking people straight out of journalism school. But mm -hmm. um, so I did that for a couple of years and um, was just bored every day, just couldn't get interested in it. Somebody along the way asked if I could shoot a commercial for them. And I had all this video experience and editing and stuff like that. So I said, yes, I did this little commercial, went pretty well. And from there, I moved that into a few more and a few more. And eventually, I was able to leave the TV station and become mm -hmm. a full-time freelance, um, basically a production company in video. And then the switch to film was really simple because I had this huge background in film as a stills photographer, big background in video as a news photographer. Putting those two together and, and starting to shoot commercials on motion picture film was a very small step. And then that, of course, led to this long career in commercials, which led to boredom, which so led now, to before you yeah. dive off the commercials, any just for the listener audience, yeah. nothing or tangentially or related to your journey, any commercials that people would recognize or remember or have probably seen? So this was in the 80s. All right. So um, for, for the people in the 80s, I, I so was I did 
But for those in the eighties, so much of this stuff, right? Mm. You know, I did Crest Toothpaste, I did Saranac Beer, I did uh, the New York City Ballet, um, uh, tons and tons of regional cars and banks. And, you know, we did the big Honda dealer group that was in upstate New York. So things like that. I I had a a really solid niche in big regional commercials. Most make the most money, have the less, the lowest stress. For a pretty stressful. Hey, that career. sounds like the perfect mix: more yeah, money, less, less stress, less stress. And, uh, and get to enjoy it more. So, yeah. Now you did commercials, and how long did you do commercials for? I did how that long? for about ten years, hmm. um, and then I kind of stopped caring what kind of soap you use. So, <laughs> when so I, you, did, was, you, you, did, you did as many commercials as would get you excited. You get to the end of the ten years and say, "Okay, all the commercials that I used to find exciting probably aren't exciting." So, at that point, as you're kind of worn out or you, you kind of reached the end of the interest level there how did you decide what you're going to do next or kind of what that next phase was was that hey i'm just gonna take a year off take a sabbatical go enjoy life for a bit was it kept doing it but started to look into different things or kind of how did you decide what yeah you yeah it was it was so first of all the trigger to get out of the commercial industry there was i i remember this like it was yesterday even though it was i don't know how many years ago starting to do budgets and only caring about the bottom line. Hmm. You know, I'd get storyboards in, I'd build a budget and I'd look at the thing and say, okay, my profit is going to be X and that's cool. And that's when that started to drive me other than the creative development, the working with the, the advertising agencies, the energy of being on set, all that. When that shifted to uh, just being able to, you know, just saying, well, all right, so here's a hundred thousand dollar commercial. I'm going to net off this how cool is that? Mm. That's when this, the, it triggered off. And um, so then there was another complete left turn. And um, I was in the middle of building an airplane in my garage. I'm a, a lifelong pilot and flight instructor. And so I went to the people who were, who made the kit of the airplane I was building. And I thought, why don't I just go sell airplanes for a couple of years? And that company was relocating to Bend, Oregon. I went to Bend, visited, didn't see myself settling there, turned around, came back, got home, got on the phone, called a friend of mine who I had done a short film for during my commercial stint and said, hey, I'm thinking about just getting out of commercials and into movies. And he was like, good timing. So that led to um, a movie that, had a huge, fabulous history called Judy Berlin uh, that we made with um, director Eric Mendelson with, and, and that, so that was my first feature film. And I was the director of photography on it. It was Madeline Kahn, Edie Falco, Barbara Berry, Bob Dishy. It was a huge cast. Uh, it's a small independent movie. We shot it in black and white. It won the director's award at Sundance. It was at Cannes, it, the movie went everywhere. And so that kind of kicked off again, this, this, right place, right time, which I know is frustrating for people to hear because how do you get in the right place, right time? But I think if you do enough stuff and you do it with the idea that, uh, you know, if you do what you love, the money will follow, mm-hmm. those right times and right places showed up and that happened to be. Now, the thing about that movie was of all the movies I've done, I did subsequently, that one was the hardest, not only because it was my first and the budget was small, and the cast was amazing. So the, the, the need to be perfect was high, hmm. but 
it was just hard. It was like, it was like a bike race hard. It was mm. just hard. So none of it, none of this wor work came e easily, even though the jobs kind of came, the work was never easy. And I think that's a really important piece of it that if you're going to do this, especially today, right, where there's so much help and technology and, and uh, maybe even a little reduction in quality overall of creative work that's being put out. I think you just have to be willing to say, okay, I'm just going to work as hard as I can possibly work. I'm going to ride this bike race as hard as I can possibly ride this bike race. No. And I like that. And I think, you know, the right place, right time. I also think it's everybody can, you know, every, it always sounds like, you know, right, right place, right time. Like you just fell into it. But one, you know, a couple things to hit on is one is that you were cultivating different interests and always, or, you know, and doing things outside of just your normal employment. We weren't solely focused on that to the exclusion of everything else, such that you had other interests, you had interest in airplanes. And then you were also networking, talking with people, seeing what else was out there. I think, you know, when those opportunities come along, if you're prepared, then it seems, okay, I was just right place, right time. Whereas if you weren't prepared or you didn't have that willingness to explore and, and other interests and, and always you're working on, you know, other things, you would have never been, even if that right place, right time had come along, you wouldn't have been prepared and you wouldn't have done anything with it anyway. So I always think, that why right place, right time, you know, does have a, a part, play a part into it. It's also that preparation and, and being open to it as well. And I think the other thing is to go through life, never burning a bridge, mm. right? Because, you know, we had a joke in the film industry that said, be nice to them on their way up because they're going to hire you on your way down. <laughs> and, and it's kind of true, right? I mean, I ended up working for a lot of people over the years who I helped their careers at some level throughout and then you know they turn around and they bring me back on so so that um no and i and i love that because you know it's one of those where it's always easier you just especially if it's you're not partying in good terms or it feels like they you know they leveraged you and you know or they you know they left you in the the you know left you behind or anything else it's always there's always that temptation to have that self-gratifying moment where you just tell them what you think or you tell them off or anything else and while it feels good for that slight amount of time, yeah. it always burns a bridge and it, you can, it's much harder to ever rebuild a, a, a burned bridge if you even can than if you just swallow your pride or you move on or you congratulate them or you continue to support them or anything else because you never know how things will connect later on and it's always easier to have those connections. As you said, when you're going up or they're coming down or either, you know, whichever direction people are going, if you leave that bridge intact, even if you think you've been wronged or you, you know, you it wasn't fair or anything else, I think it always preserves a lot more opportunities. Especially now, because the world has gotten so small. I mean, you know, what happens in Vegas shows up on Facebook. So <laughs> it's like, you know, you can't dodge a burnt bridge any longer. It, it's, you just can't dodge it. No, I completely agree. So, so now getting back to your journey. So you've done, you know, all of, up until now, it seems like, you know, they kind of all made sense. You did photography, then you got into television, you got into commercials, you got into a bit of movies, which all kind of have that cinematography, that artistic, the ability to, you know, create something and to bring it to, you know, fruition. And then you jump over to scuba diving, which does seem like a fairly <laughs> drastic jump from what you were doing. So how did you go from all, you know, all of the creative side to, and I'm sure there may be creative in scuba, but I don't think of it quite as much. How did you get into scuba diving? Kind of what triggered that? And then how did that kind of all, or work out for you? So throughout all of these things I've done up until that point, every iteration of my career had an educational component. 
Um, so in the film business, in the film industry, I was teaching, I spent 24 years teaching um, at the Rockport College and the, the, main, um, the main workshops. And it was a vital part of my life for you know a couple of weeks or a month or two every summer to go up to this place and teach film workshops and teach up and coming filmmakers how to really, you know, do the best job they can most efficiently. And I, I moved that into a mentoring company in the film industry that I had for many years. It's still open um, called one-on-one -on -one film training. Right. And we were basically, um, we were basically training emerging directors on visual storytelling. And that worked out to be another educational element. And that sort of pushed me into the mentoring coaching world. Um, I've been a lifelong flight instructor. So I had that element and I was teaching air competition aerobatics and coaching, coaching pilots. And, uh, and I was also a scuba instructor just because I mean, we can start, we can talk at some point about the master's journey, right? The master's journey to me is a very simple road right? Mm -hmm. It's discovery, training, practice, and teaching, right? It's four elements to any journey. So in order to get to the end point, the most important thing is to find a way to teach in any industry or any, any discipline to actually get to a point where you can explain things properly, bring people along, create retention in the film, in education and so on. So that journey happened to me over and over and over. It happened in the film industry, right? Discovery, training, practice, teaching. Happened in flying. Discovery, training, years of practice, flight instructor. It happened in scuba. Discovery, training, practice, scuba instructor, and now scuba instructor trainer. So when you look at any of these industries that I've been in or any of the journeys that I've taken or you know, anybody who's taken who really wants to get to that point, giving back, teaching, bringing people along, is always wants to me be a huge part of the progression to get to the point where you get this, this mastery level. So when I was trying to figure out a way out of the film business to go back to your question, um, and I did, I had one producing partner who said to me one day that, you know, you spent 20 years trying to get into the film business and 20 years trying to get out. Um, because, you know, the, for 95% for of the people in the film industry, your full-time job is looking for work and your part-time job is working. So mm -hmm. I wanted a real job or a real, a more real job. So um, I had, I was working with this guy and he was a high-end scuba instructor and, you know, through a lot of machinations and conversations and craziness, we decided to start a scuba training and certification agency which is still, that was 12 years ago, and it's still maybe 13 now. It's still running. It's called UTD Scuba Diving, formerly Unified Team Diving. And for me, it was, didn't matter that it was scuba, could have been rocket science, brain surgery, auto mechanics. I didn't care. I wanted an, a company that had a big, strong education component to it. I like scuba, I'm good at it. I'm an instructor. And it seemed like the place where we could really make a difference by taking, uh, a traditional scuba training model, putting a completely different spin on it, making it a boutique agency with a different mission than most scuba training agencies, and then build that out as an education program. So, so I brought in a lot of the education component. My partner brought in a lot of the scuba intellectual property, and and uh, it ran well for for a pretty long time. Now, and then I, I bought that. Follow-up yeah. question to that: Are 
Well, and I, maybe you touched on briefly, but what made you decide to get out of the film? And I get the educational aspect, and that's kind of a, a commonality throughout. But what made you decide, okay, I'm kind of done with movies and film and photography, and I want to switch over and do something different. Still, you know, the educational and having that aspect, but what was kind of that trigger? What, you know, was it something planned or was it something that came along that you thought would be fun? Or kind of how did you make that change? You know, it was the same as as kind of everything else, right? It was a serendipitous moment where this opportunity presented itself, you know, where the stars lined up for that. But, um, you know, I'd done photography and cinematography and directing for, I don't know how long, right? From, since mm -hmm. 1973 until we started this thing in 2008. So I was kind of like ready for something else, right? I mean, I was having fun, it was good. And I was just ready for something else. So when this came up, I mean, of course, there was an overlap, right? I was still making movies and still, you know, doing the education thing. But um, yeah, it just seemed like an interesting target to see if we could pull this off as a startup. And it turned out to be yes. So now you, you get that in and you had your partner and you worked with them for a good period of time. Now, I think that at one point, you know, so you build that up and I, I can't remember, it was eight or nine, 10, whatever amount of yeah. years. And you're working with a partner and then what kind of made you guys decide to split or go different paths and how did you decide which path he would take, which path you would take and kind of how did that all work out? So the company had two divisions. It had a training scuba company, a training division and an equipment division. Um, I, I was never a big fan of the equipment division. Hmm. Um, I think when you take a company like ours that had an income stream that was completely passive, right? We we're basically a digital publishing company and you add in stuff it complicates things right because you know if we ran out of this one thing in a size medium and we had an order for one we had to order 50 or 100 or 200 so the cash flow issues associated with maintaining a, a small company with a big equipment catalog became challenging and taxed heavily the training side of it mm. so um, you know, I gave some thought to should I exit the scuba company and, you know, I looked around for someone to buy my half of it and so on and, and, um, you know, looked at other opportunities. Was it a good exit time? Was it not a good exit time? So on. So we got to a point where, um, you know, my partner was going through some changes also. And we had the, op you know, we had lunch and it was like, why don't we just close it? You know, let's just close it and be done. But a lot of people were relying on it, right? A lot of instructors had left their other agencies to work with us. And it just didn't seem like a responsible thing to do to the people we've impacted over that decade. So we came to this agreement where I would take the training company, you know, it's no secret. I bought it for a dollar and he would take the equipment side and there's no secret. He bought it for a dollar. We separated them out. It was pretty amicable. And, um, you know, we did a bunch of legal stuff to create new companies, new corporations, and um, and it gave me a chance to clean the slate on technology. So I was able to start the company, run it the way I wanted to run it, focus on what I wanted to focus on, um, build it the way I wanted to build it, and uh, yeah, just kind of move it forward. And that was just a year and a half yeah, just a year and a half ago, January 2020. So the company was kind of reborn, rebirthed. And, you know, I'm having fun. I'm still doing it. I'm having fun. I love it. You know, I, I dive a desk a lot more than the water, but 
it's okay because it's fun now, and fun I know and I think that's awesome. and I think that there you know a lot of times you get in there with a the business partner you each have different strengths that you can leverage different things that you can do but you also sometimes say hey as a business grows as it starts to go different directions different you know different founders or partners have different ideas and directions and you can either kind of continue to butt heads and sometimes a uh, headbutting can make the business grow and you know it can push it and you know you have someone to really back in so to speak but other times it's just saying hey we just want to go two different directions is probably better to amicably split paths rather than continue to have that internal consternation within the company that sounds like that was the best decision for you guys now the last part of your journey is also you got into what would be parkinson's exercise regimen which how did you get into that because that you know that at least seems like it has the same teaching aspect to it but park you know Cinematography to scuba to Parkinson's are all fairly disparate. So, how did you get into to that that aspect of the of the of your business? Yeah, there's a thread there for sure. And again, you know, you have to be able to say yes to the universe when something drops in your plate. I think that's the most important thing, right? So, and we talked about this earlier that you know, serendipitous doesn't mean magic. It means you've worked in a direction for a long time, and when an opportunity comes up, you recognize it and say yes. So what was happening on the Parkinson's thing is um, I had been doing quite a bit of work for the local Parkinson's Association through friends and, and so on. And um, so I was doing their website and I was doing their email distribution, a little bit of marketing and, and uh, quite a bit of, of video production for them because I, I still keep my hand in that on little small projects. So there's that piece of it. And then on this corner, there's that I'm a um, longtime bicycle racer and, and a, a coached athlete now in the master's division. So I race a bike at the, on the track at the national level and have had coaches now continuously for, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 years as I've been getting you know, better and better at this as I get older and older. So I have that piece of it. I understand how to be coached. Hmm. I had the training and mentoring program. So I understand how to coach. And I was at a Parkinson's Association in San Diego board meeting and one of the right when COVID started. And with with Parkinson's, you have to exercise. It's the only known therapy to slow the progression of Parkinson's. Uh, so with COVID, the gyms closed, the programs closed, and people were just literally left in their homes and told by their doctors, their movement disorder specialists, you have to exercise. But at that point, nobody really knew how, because there was they were going to Pilates and boxing and this and that and the other thing. Now there's nothing, right? So mm. all of a sudden, people are walking 20 minutes a day, calling it exercise and getting worse symptoms, worse and worse and worse and worse. So I was at this meeting for something else. And I, and I have to back up just a tiny little bit. I took in scuba, one of the things I did in scuba was I created a coaching model to supplement teaching. So you can do a, in UTD, you can do a scuba course or you can take on an instructor as a coach and they'll take you through scuba training over a long period of time with lots of peripheral stuff to it. And I used my athletic training model for that. In the mm -hmm. Parkinson's Association meeting, I said, look, I have this model set up in the scuba company for coaching. I have this experience for decades as a coached athlete. Why don't we put it together? We'll make a coaching program for these people who don't know how to exercise, don't have gyms. It'll all be online. They can exercise in their homes. And, you know, that crowd of people were like, yeah, do it. Just do it. So I grabbed a partner um, 
from the Parkinson's Association, good friend of mine, has Parkinson's, um, was not a chronic exerciser, but knew she had to. Hmm. And, you know, we discussed how to make this, how to create a program for people that would give them all the benefits of athletic coaching without the stress of having to compete. Parkinson's, you're competing every day, right? You've got to train. It's the only thing that will stop or slow these symptoms over the course of a lifetime. So we came up with this very simple, really simple model, the same model that endurance athletes have been using with coaches for years. There are a couple of pieces of software out there that manage this. We came up with a name that I still love called Coach Me Strong. Uh, we grabbed one of the online training software packages called Today's Plan, which is a, a fabulous piece of software and an, and an amazing company. More importantly than the software, they're an amazing company, customer service development, attention to detail, all that's been incredible. So I took a third party piece of software, put it together with a, what I think is a, a great name, a solid partner, and a, a built in constituency. And we built this thing out in like six weeks, website, software, I got coaches who had worked with Parkinson's patients for years, physical therapists, exercise physiologists, kinesiologists. We trained them on how to do structured training to give them the, the, the workout part. The clients sign up, they pay a monthly fee, they get an online calendar, they get an online communications thing with their coach, they talk to the coaches every day, and people started getting better. And it was awesome. <laughs> I mean, it was awesome to see it go. So, you know, the company has been doing really, really steadily great since May of 2020 when it opened. And um, now that gyms and stuff are starting to open here and there, we have no sign of slowing down. We're just incorporating those facilities and programs back into our clients' training. We've expanded it to three different constituencies. So Parkinson's is its own constituency. It's kind of where the roots are. And then we, we also have a constituency, constituency of other neurologically challenged people. So that would be MS, um, Alzheimer's, traumatic brain injury, stroke, things like that. Again, people who need to exercise but don't know how. And then the third constituency was based on care partners, but it's really anybody who is kind of getting older, who again, needs to exercise, wants to exercise, but doesn't know how. And that's the constituency we were calling Gen OW. It's kind of the baby boomers, but I, kind of, mm. I hate that. Silent generation, that's 1929 and prior. We have clients that old. I, it just needed a name for it. There's Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Zs, and Qs, and whatever. So I just came up with Gen OW for generation older, wiser. Hey, I like that. No, I think that's, that's great. I see that. Sounds like a lot of uh, fun uh, opportunities, a lot of fun things that you've been able to accomplish and continue to be able to work on. So well, that kind of brings us to up to kind of where you're at today and kind of what thing or how your journey got to where you're at today and always tons and tons of more things that would be fun to talk about that never quite have uh, time to. But as we start to wrap towards the end of the podcast, I always have two questions that I, that I ask. So we'll jump to those now. So the first question I always ask is along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made and what did you learn from it? So unfortunately that's an easy one. Um, when we started the scuba company, we couldn't find software to run it that met all our needs, right? Education delivery systems, certification tracking. And so we made it. So mm -hmm. we bankrolled 
um, a giant software company, which again, you know, the UTD didn't really have the money for it, but we did it anyway. And we put personal money in it and we built this huge, huge software package at a time when software was fracturing, right? People mm. were going to very specific things. That's education, that's certification, that's calendar, that's communicate. We just put the whole thing in one giant package and it was like building, you know, a 600 foot long truck on a Volkswagen frame. It just didn't work. We spent so much money, so much time. It was such a disaster. I didn't know anything about software development. It was a train wreck. We called it a train wreck with a capital R. When I rebuilt UTD, so now you're asking what I learned from it. When I rebuilt UTD a year and a half ago and I took it over, I went 100% third-party software. And it's amazing. So if you don't know what you're doing, buy it, don't build it. That's my advice. No, I think that's a good, it's a, it's a hard, it's a hard balance sometimes to know. And it's an easy mistake to make because sometimes you're saying how oh, the software out there is just, it's terrible or doesn't work or doesn't accomplish what we do or clients aren't going to like it as much. And so there's a temptation to build it. And sometimes building, it can be lucrative. You can build something that really makes sense and really works. But other times, as you found out, it can be one where it's a money pit that it's always taking longer and you get to the end and it's really not that much better or it's not doesn't have the value for what you had to put into it or software evolved so quickly that people already moved on or they're better third party things. And so it's one where you always have to balance, I think, to your point of do you build it or do you buy it? And a lot of times if you can buy it, it saves a whole lot more um, you know, time, money and effort than it, what you can get out of building it. So I think that that's definitely a great uh, takeaway. Second question, um, if somebody were just getting into a startup or a small business, what'd be the one piece of advice you'd give them? So if you're getting into a company, we talked about this before we actually, before we did the recording, right? I believe there are two reasons to build, to, to do a startup. One is you're passionate about something, you want to do a company, and you're willing to ram your idea down the throats of potential clients. That was UTD. The second reason is you see a niche and you fill it and that's coach me strong. So I've had the opportunity to do both of these, right? Be passionate about something, create a new product, try to market it, be open to a niche, create it, fill it, and then try to market it. The commonality between those two things, it doesn't matter which one you do. If you're, if you're willing to go the long road for either one, the commonality is business startups are marketing projects. They are not widget selling projects. They're not publishing projects. They're not scuba training projects. They're not coaching projects. They are marketing projects. If you're not prepared, ready, prepped, and educated on the marketing side, you can make the world's best company, the world's best product, the world's best gizmo, mm -hmm. and no one's going to buy it if they don't know about it. So I think going into any project you have to look at every single thing as a marketing project. It's why I screwed up in the film industry in terms of, a, 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 that full-time job is looking for work and part-time job is working because that when I was looking for work, I didn't realize that I was the marketing project. No, I, I, I think that there's a ton of wisdom that. in that, you know, everybody thinks hey, I'll build a better mousetrap. I'll build a great product, which definitely need in a company if you don't have something to sell then you're not going to sell anything but if you just simply go in naively thinking oh if i build it they will come and if i make a cool product they'll come 
banging down my doors. And, you know, I think you get that kind of when you watch the television shows or Shark Tank or in the movies or anything else, because that's how it is always portrayed. Oh, you build it, they fast forward, and now you're a big success. But they always leave out, <laughs> you have to launch it, you still have to make it work, you still have to actually do something. And I think there's a ton of wisdom, and you have to be prepared to market your own product. You have to be prepared to figure out who to sell it to and how to sell it to them and how to get do all that aspect. Otherwise, you can build the best product and it will still never go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, right? Th these are things that, you know, maybe if I went to college, I would have learned that. But I think there's plenty of people who went to college and still never learned them. <laughs> Others that didn't go to college and learned them a lot better and vice versa. So it's one of those where I think that, you know, a lot of times we get, oh, you know, and I'll give you an example. Attorneys are the worst of this because I think, oh, if I am just a really good attorney, that's all it takes to make it in the, you know, in the legal industry because everybody just wants my expertise as an attorney. You have to be willing to sell, you know, you still have to be even as an attorney selling you all the time. You have to be figuring out how to find new clients, how to bring them on, how to keep them happy, how to land new business. And those are the attorneys that are more successful than just the ones that, not that you don't need to know the law, but if all you know is the law and you don't figure out their other aspects, it's going to significantly hamper your, your career path. So I think that there's definitely a great aspect there. On that note, just as a reminder, we are going to do um, talk just a little bit about intellectual property after the we wrap up the normal part of the, the podcast. But before we do that, if people want to reach out to you, they want to find out more about you know your scuba training, they want to they have Parkinson's and want to find out about the exercise regimen, they want to be a customer, they want to be a client, they want to be an investor, they want to be an employee, they want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above. What's the best way to reach out, contact you, find out more? Yeah, so the two companies, it's coachmestrong.com and utdscubadiving.com. Pretty simple. All right, yeah. makes it as simple as that. Well, I definitely encourage people to reach out, find out more, and uh, a lot of a lot of great to experience, uh, whether it's uh, for any of the or for any of the business that you offer or any of the knowledge that you have. Well, thank you again for coming on the podcast. It's been a fun. It's been a pleasure. Now, for all of you that are listeners, if you have your own journey to tell and you'd like to be guests on the podcast, feel free to go to inventiveguest.com. Apply to be on the show. We'd love to have you. Two more things as a listener. One, make sure to click subscribe in your podcast player so you know when all of our awesome episodes come out. And two, leave us a review so um, everybody else can find out about all of our awesome episodes. Last but not least, if you ever need help with patents, trademarks, or anything else, go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time with us to chat. So now as we've wrapped up the normal part of the uh, episode, we always get to switch gears a bit and you get to take the driver's seat and ask a question. So with that, I'll turn it over to you to ask what or ask your number one intellectual property question. Yeah, so it was really interesting when you presented this as, as um, an opportunity for me to get a little free advice out of this thing. Um, I'm always careful about free advice because I know how <laughs> I know how valuable free is. You know, we always called free the other F word. But um I have a question that has haunted me for many, many years, both in right. scuba and in even the coaching business is if I trademark something or if I patent something, knowing that I don't have the resources to defend it, what's the point? No, I, and I think that's a fair question. It's one that a lot of startups, small businesses often grapple with because you're saying, okay, let's say I go get the world's best patent or the world's best trademark and it's very valuable, but I'm still a startup or small business. And I have the, the Goliath come along, right? And they're going to come along and they're going to just simply run over the top of me. They have the money that they can exhaust it in court. And even if I'm in the right, it's still I'm still not going to be able to enforce it, which I think there's a, a ton of truth to that. So there's a couple of things. If, if that's the only reason you're going to do it is I'm going to take on the big guys, I would say you're probably better 
at this point to hold off or to invest in other places because that's probably not going to give you the return on time. Now, with that said, there's a couple of other areas that I would look at. One is that, you know, not all businesses are going to compete with you are going to be big businesses. You know, you may have another startup or a small business or a competitor. Let's say you're in California and somebody down in Florida starts a scuba, you know, scuba business and they're also a small or small startup, but they start to infringe on your name. Well, for the smaller businesses, you all, you're in a much better position. You can, you know, you can get them to whether it's a cease and desist or you can start down the road of, of suits and they're not going to want to get into it any more than you are because they don't want to expend all their funds on that either. So it does have some value on that end. Um, another one you're always looking at is with start or with big businesses, let's say a couple of things. One is that there's always a competitor to a big business. You know, Apple has Samsung, you have uh, Nike that has Adidas, Pepsi has Coca-Cola. And so almost indefinitely, you're going to have a big business that has a competitor. And if one big business comes and starts to really knock off what you're doing, a lot of times what you do is you leverage that and say, okay, I'm going to go to your, you go to their competitor and say, I'm not in the position to enforce this, but your competitor is finding that we have a lot of value in the system or this brand or whatnot. Why don't you take it over? You acquire, you license from us, and then you do the work of enforcing it because they're looking for that competitive edge. Another thing that you can always think about is it also is building in an asset to your company. So, you know, one thing you're always thinking, oh, this is just the ability to protect it. But if you're putting in a ton of time, sweat, and money and effort to build something, whether it's a brand, whether it's a patent, then you're also going to say, well, now what about in five or 10 years when I go to sell it or I go to get acquired or I do a merger or an acquisition or a licensing? And they come and say, well, that's great that you build a good system. Now, what is, where's the value of your business? Is it in the brand that you built? Is it in the product that you build? Is it in the customer loyalty? Is it in the customer list? You know, kind of what is it? A lot of times you're able to monetize or say, no, here's our asset. We built a good brand. We have the protection there. And as you, somebody mergers, you know, wants to merge with you, acquire you, you want to sell your business, you want to retire, you can get a better valuation as an asset, not just as a something that protects you. So those are a lot of them across the board, but hopefully it gives you a little, at least a little bit of an insight as to other ways that you're going to leverage your intellectual property aside from just protecting it from a much bigger competitor. Yeah, I think it's interesting, Devin. I think that that's probably the clearest um, I've ever had that explained to me. And we have had that exact experience where people have just basically taken our scuba standards and procedures, put their name on them, and opened up a scuba training agency. And, you know, it just feels like, you know, between international law and everything else, it's just it's such an overwhelming weight to say, how do we fight this thing? And, you know, we try, we try, you know, simple letters and things on our own, but, um, it's an interesting, it's, it's been an interesting, uh, conundrum for me for many years. So it gives me a, some more food to think food for thought in, in terms of how do we, no, and I think it, but I think it highlights definitely, you have to think about that and, and plan for it ahead of time. All you're doing is saying, well, somebody told me I needed a trademark and I'll go get it just because they told me to, and you don't have any idea how you're going to leverage it why you're going to use it or what it's going to be good for. And then you probably shouldn't get it, at least not until the point that you understand it. And then you should be saying, okay, here's the point of our roadmap where it's going to make sense. As an example, if somebody else were to file a trademark first, you know, when you use branding and they're come along and say, hey, this is, uh, you know, this is a good brand. I'm going to file on it first. And then they box you out of your own business. So not, it's not only just protecting you from others competing, but now somebody else is stopping you from using your own brand and that's a much longer discussion but then you have to say okay i've got you also look and say if i had to rebrand if i had to do something else would that be easier or more worthwhile or would i rather be able to have that protection so even if somebody does come along copy they're not boxing out my own brand so 
there's a lot of strategy, but I think the point is, is to kind of get someone that can help you explain it, understand it, be able to work your way through it is as as much value as anything else. So with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up the podcast and it's been fun to have you on. I've had, it was a great conversation. And uh, if you or any of the audience have any other questions now or down the road, if you ever want to ask any other questions about intellectual property, go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time with us to chat and always happy to help. In the meantime, wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last.